It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 191 for May 9th, 2010, recorded May 7th. Microsoft's Office Suite 2010 will be released in June, both as an online service and as applications that run on your PC. If you buy Office 2007 between now and September, your upgrade to the 2010 version is free. Otherwise, there is an upgrade fee. With the release date fast approaching, I decided that you're probably wondering what's new for 2010. You can, in fact, find out for yourself by downloading the public beta from Microsoft's website. The suite will be available in both 32-bit and 64-bit versions. I haven't yet been able to install the 64-bit version because it cannot run on a system where the 32-bit version of Office 2007 is installed. And I'm not willing to discard 2007 just yet. Or at least I wasn't until just this week. More about that later. In this case, my testing was done on a 32-bit notebook computer, and that leads me to my very first big warning. Even if you tell the installer not to remove any Office 2007 products, it will convert Outlook to the new version. And that leads me to my second very big warning. When this happens, the files will not be compatible with Outlook 2007. I had been synchronizing the notebook computer with the office computer via an HP iPack and then copying the files to Outlook on the 64-bit desktop. I do this only for convenience because I don't use Outlook as my email application at home. And that leads me to my third very big warning. Even though I set up Outlook 2010 with the exact same server settings that work flawlessly under 2007, I cannot connect to the office mail server, which requires an encrypted connection. For me, this is an inconvenience. If you depend on Outlook, it could be a disaster for you. Note, though, that I expect whatever is causing this will be resolved by the time Office 2010 is released. And actually, Office 2010 has been released to manufacturing, and this weekend I will be installing the actual release to manufacturing code on my systems. And all of this leads me to my very first small warning. You may already know that Google Calendar Sync does not work with 64-bit operating systems. For that reason, I had to stop using it on my desktop computer. Well, it also doesn't work with Office 2010, 32 or 64-bit, so I can't use it on the notebook either. But Microsoft does expect humans to be using the applications. Have you ever closed a document that you've been working on without saving it? And then you have one of those oops moments. Well, I don't think I've ever done that. Not once. I learned early that it's important to save early and often. But maybe your experience with computers doesn't go back to the dark ages. Maybe looking cross-eyed at a computer doesn't make it crash. So I can understand how this might happen. You start a document, work on it for a bit, and then absentmindedly close it. Or you purposely decide to quit. Maybe you think it was a bad start and you'll just begin fresh next time. But then you decide maybe it wasn't such a bad start after all and you wish you still had the document. With Office 2010, you can retrieve the document even if you closed it without ever saving it. The only caveat is you have to have autosave turned on. That's right, autosave is now more than just crash recovery. 
The changes Microsoft made between Office 2003 and Office 2007 were revolutionary. The ribbon, although it has proved to be a good idea, confused a lot of people for a while. For Office 2010, the ribbon remains, but updates are noticeable. Instead of the Office 2007 pearl, that round thing in the upper left corner, there's now a new tab. I like the pearl, but some users never figured out what it was for. They never learned that it was the way to get to a lot of useful settings. And the menu is back now by default. In Office 2007, the menu functions were still there, but the menus themselves were by default not visible. Click the File tab and you'll discover the ability to protect the document, manage versions, or check for issues. In today's vernacular, issues are what we used to call problems. Microsoft refers to this panel as the backstage view. All right, whatever. Microsoft developers continue to add functions to Word that really don't belong in a Word processor, features that convince some users that they should be able to use Word as a publishing program. In Word 2010, for example, you can type the word quick in a large enough typeface, and you'll notice that the U is positioned above the tail of the Q. This is expected from an application such as Adobe InDesign, but not from a word processor. Word doesn't get it exactly right, in my opinion, but it's surprisingly good for a word processor. Word has had an outline view for a long time, but now there's a navigation view. This is a huge improvement over the plain old outline. It will automatically display sections of a document based on heads and subheads. Navigate to the section by just clicking on its name in the navigation list. All of that is expected behavior, but then try clicking and dragging the section head to another place in the list, and you may be surprised that the entire section of the document is repositioned. Beware doing this with the final section of the document, though. If you haven't yet divided the document into sections, the positioning may move more than what you expected. Today's report on the Office Suite is a quick first looks report, so you're not going to hear very much about any one application. Let's move on to OneNote. I've become a fan of OneNote in the past year, and although the associated Groove application fails to function properly in a 64-bit environment, I consider OneNote to be one of the more useful parts of the suite, even without Groove. In the 2010 version, OneNote gains linking features that connect to Word and PowerPoint. Even better, OneNote can run in compatibility mode so that existing OneNote 2007 documents are still usable. What's up with Excel? I remember the first time I saw pivot tables. As I recall, this was a Lotus function, but Microsoft quickly borrowed the idea. The slicer is a new function for 2010. It displays a summary view of a pivot table in a chart that's similar to the navigation pane in Word. This isn't exactly a new feature, but it's been made a lot more accessible in this version. The most major interface change is reserved for Outlook but I'm still concerned about the lack of compatibility with Outlook 2007 and the application's inability to deal with secure servers. Outlook seems to be an improvement over the previous version, but I can't say for sure until it's fully operational on my testing computers. Something that might be particularly vexing for some people is that Outlook files will be converted to the new format even if you tell the installer to leave the previous version alone. The new file format, as I mentioned, is incompatible with the old program. The very quick bottom line on Office 2010 is it's a lot like Office 2007, only better. No cat rating yet because I haven't had enough time to really look at it in depth. Not everybody agrees that the ribbon was a good idea, but I found it easy to understand, and the latest version refines the concept. As I said, this is a quick first-looks report based almost entirely on the final beta version, 
although I did install the RTM version on Thursday, the 6th of May, on my notebook computer, you'll see a full report in a few weeks and a real cat rating, complete with a real cat. For more information, you can check the Microsoft website. And there's, of course, a link to there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you're thinking about installing a new disk drive, you might be interested in a reader's question. Here it is. I have a new 1TB SATA drive. I've removed a 40GB SATA boot drive, formatted the 1TB drive, and installed XP Pro on it. The motherboard has four SATA ports on the motherboard, so it looks as though I could have both of them and more connected. But if I put both into the tower and connect their SATA cables and power cables, what determines which is chosen to boot the system? I have a quick answer to the question, but the full answer becomes a little more complicated. The quick answer is CMOS. The motherboard should have come with a book of some sort, although it will be largely useless, but it might tell you which key will give you access to the CMOS at boot time. If not, just watch the screen closely and you should see a message that says something like press some particular key for setup, or words like that. The most common keys these days, delete, F2, but others are possible. In the CMOS settings, you'll find one menu selection called boot, and this would be a very good time to issue my standard caution, do not change any CMOS setting unless you are absolutely certain what it does, that you really want to do what it does, and that the hardware is capable of doing what you want it to do. Some changes can have rather nasty consequences. Once you've found that section, there should be a couple of subsections that will be of interest. One will specify the order in which various types of devices will be examined for the boot record, and the other will specify which particular device of that type to boot First, you might see, for example, a list like this. Removable devices, fixed disks, USB devices, and network. One of them will be selected. Most likely, removable devices or fixed disks. If the selection is removable devices, then the computer would look first at the floppy drive, if there is one, or at an optical drive, and then at the internal hard drives, then at USB devices, and finally at a network drive. The first boot record found would be executed. The list, as you see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, is fairly common, although some people do set the fixed disk to be first. This saves a few seconds at boot time, and if you ever need to boot from a removable device, you can always switch it back. It's also a setting that some people choose for security reasons. But you'll probably leave this section alone unless you want to move the removable devices down a bit in the pecking order. With fixed disks or internal disks or something like that selected, you will see a list of the installed devices. This will look pretty much like gobbledygook. For example, ST3250410AS. So what this tells me is it's a Seagate technology, 3-inch form factor, 250-gigabyte hard drive, or ST3500630AS. Again, a 3-inch form factor Seagate technology drive, 500 gigabytes. So you should be able to identify the drives by examining the numbers. You need to select the device you want to be the boot drive, and then make sure it's at the top of the list. But there's an even shorter answer than that. You might not have to do anything. The hardware has probably already detected the drive you'd like to have as the boot device. So plug in the other drive. Unlike in the olden days, there aren't any jumpers to swap. When you boot the computer, your new C drive should be the one that starts the computer. The other drive should show up probably as D, if it appears as some other drive, you can use the Disk Manager console in Windows to reassign it to D. If the old drive shows up as C, and it's the drive the computer boots from, you will need to make some changes in CMOS. If the old drive shows up as E or F, or something else further down in the alphabet, you can safely make that change in the Disk Manager. 
The question continued. I have a removable USB-connected drive, but there's not enough room on it to move a copy of the non-system files from the old 40-gigabyte drive there temporarily. I had removed the C and D drives from the tower before installing the one terabyte. I ran through the formatting and system install, then found, surprise, that I had left the USB drive connected and that it had been christened C. My new boot drive, the one terabyte guy, was now E. (laughs) Yeah, I can sympathize with that. I learned the hard way it's a good idea to have only one active drive when installing Windows. The installer sometimes picks... No, the installer almost always picks the wrong drive. I once left two internal drives active in the computer, and because I wasn't paying attention to a critical message, formatted the D drive that contained all my data, and installed the operating system there. Well, that's what backups are for. My correspondent continued by saying he had unplugged the USB drive and run through the system install again. Now the one terabyte drive is C. And, oh, by the way, if this happens to you, you do want to do that. You don't want some drive other than C to be your Windows boot drive. As a computer user, he said, from before MS Windows came along, I never adopted the practice of keeping all my data within the My Documents folder. As a result, I have a C drive that is cluttered with data-populated directories. (laughs) Well, that describes my situation fairly well, except that I have always had either a second hard drive or a second partition on the main drive, at least for as long as I can remember. It goes back to when 20 megabyte drives were huge, and I had two of them. Programs were always on C, data always on D. My correspondent continued by saying the OS on this drive has never been reinstalled to clean up the cruft that accumulates over time. Despite diligent defragging, temp file cleansing, antivirus program use, and the occasional tune-up in a shop, it has been running slower and slower. The 40-gigabyte drive was only about 80% usage, but Photoshop has been unable to do simple operations, claiming that the scratch disk is full. None of my searches have found any solution that, when applied, convinced Photoshop otherwise. I did consider just uninstalling and reinstalling Photoshop, but that's only one of several programs that are sluggish or stumped. Well, it's good you didn't do that because it wouldn't have done any good. Any Windows machine with a disk at 80% capacity is going to be slow, and applications such as Photoshop gain advantages when the swap disk is a drive other than the primary drive. So, my correspondent continued, I figured I'd do better to start with a fresh install on the new drive and keep my data files within the scope of my documents. Better to do orderly backup. Well, given your situation, I would probably use the smaller drive for the operating system and applications and use the larger drive for data. My data drive used to have several subdirectories that I named with capital letters like this, data, which included database and spreadsheet files, graphics, CorelDRAW and other graphics files, publishing, the files from Ventura, InDesign, and PageMaker, websites, both the contents of websites and the development files for them, and words, word processor files. Eventually, some of the directories became so large that I moved them to other drives. Both publishing and music have been moved off the D drive. And finally, my correspondent said, I'm thinking of Norton Ghost or an equivalent for making backup clones once I have things organized. To which I would say, good idea. I would suggest a Cronus True Image, but backup is important regardless of how you do it. If you search for backup on the TechBiter Worldwide search page, you'll find lots of references to the backup systems I use, three of them. I really don't like to lose files. I had a major disaster with Ubuntu this week. A new version of the operating system was available, so I accepted the download on my notebook computer. The only problem was that the upgrade blew up as it neared completion. I was able to get Ubuntu running again, but parts of the interface were missing. The only way I could close a program was through the file menu, and not every application has a file menu. The solution turned out to be pretty easy. 
I downloaded the installer for the new version and burned a CD. Then I booted to the CD and indicated that I simply wanted to install Ubuntu. It becomes a bit tricky if there's already an existing Ubuntu installation because the installer will see it, but not offer to upgrade it or overwrite it. To proceed, if you want to do that, and I did, it's necessary to work with the partition table manually. So I selected the existing Ubuntu partition, told the installer to format that partition, and set the root mount point there. About 20 minutes later, Ubuntu was fully functional once again. Not bad at all. I haven't yet had time to take a close look at version 10.4. That would be the Lucid Links version, but I'll be doing that in the near future, and I'll let you know what's new. You've probably noticed that Ubuntu gives each new release a clever name like Lucid Links. That caused me to start thinking about some of the names that we probably won't see anytime soon from Ubuntu. Crusty Crustacean, for example, or Smelly Skunk, Crazy Kitten, Marauding Moose, Tiny Tarantula, Silly Symbian, or even Zoned Out Zebra. Don't hold your breath. In short circuits... Skype is planning to launch a public beta test of a video chat function that will allow up to five people to chat simultaneously. The beta test will be free, but Skype plans to start charging for that service by the third quarter. Skype is that service that makes telephone calls available for free, along with the ability to send instant messages to other Skype users. Video calls are already available, too, but not the expanded five-participant type. Users currently pay for some services, such as making telephone calls to true telephones, either landline or cell phone, and the company says it expects, finally, to release a Mac version before the end of the year. eBay sold Skype last year for about $2 billion. The buyers included Skype's founders. Users currently can select subscription plans that allow them to call telephones in more than 40 countries. New subscription plans are in the works that will allow users to make calls to more than 170 countries, and to select whether they want to be able to call just landlines, which are cheaper, or just cell phones, or both. Another day, another Facebook security question. Facebook information that you thought was private might not have been. Facebook has patched the latest security embarrassment, but the continued drumbeat of leaks isn't endearing the company to its users. Of course, posting private information to a site that's designed to share information even if some of that information is intended to be private, might make you think of a raging oxymoron. As I've mentioned previously, Facebook made some changes that by default made a lot more of your information available to more people. There are privacy controls, but you have to enable them if you want to protect your information. Facebook explains the most recent problem this way. For a limited period of time, a bug permitted users' friends to view their chat messages and pending friend requests in real time. The exploit involved manipulating the Preview My Profile feature of Facebook privacy settings. Facebook says that when it received reports of the problem, they quickly disabled the chat function, diagnosed the problem, and installed a patch to fix the problem. Now, in the overall scheme of things, this really wasn't very much of a security hole. Only people you have identified as friends could exploit it, and your friends would have to be both nosy and willing to experiment with the user interface. So, not a very big problem, but still a black eye for Facebook. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.